It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me today is Labour MP Peter Kyle. Hi. Hi Peter, how are you? Very good, thank you very much. Good. This is part two of our summer podcast series focusing on the Big Tent Ideas Festival which is happening on August 31st in London. Last week we had co-founder and Tory MP George Freeman on the podcast which you can now listen to on Audioboom, HuffPost's website or the usual Apple and Android channels and we've come to Peter's lovely flat in his Hove constituency as he will also be speaking at the festival. HuffPost UK is teaming up with Big Tent for the event and our journalists will be leading, contributing and chairing debates involving speakers from across the political spectrum. There are not many places where you can see the likes of Rory Stewart, Lisa Nandy, Penny Morden, Extinction Rebellion and the Joe Cox Foundation all appearing alongside each other, to name just a few. So, Peter, you're a Labour MP. Why have you agreed to speak at an event which has been dubbed Tory Glastonbury? Well, I was one of the first people that agreed to speak at it last year, and suddenly when I looked on the Sky News and saw a ticker tape going across saying Peter Kyle's agreed to speak at, in inverted commas, Tory Glastonbury, the first thing I thought when I saw it was, who's Peter Kyle? And then I thought, uh, uh, it's extraordinary that suddenly it's making headlines, and a whole bunch of my colleagues pulled out, and uh, I just thought, well, I'll just go ahead and carry on speaking, because it's just really important. You know, I don't know why we live in an age where we there's so much pressure for us to speak to ourselves and go into a room full of people who we already agree with and sort of slap each other on the back, sort of reinforce each other uh, and our prejudices and our opinions and kind of self-congratulate each other. And I find that really difficult because I went into politics to uh, engage with other people and to learn from other people, people who... Uh, who've been involved in what we do here in Hove will know that in 2013 when I was selected as a candidate and we moved towards 2015 we had as our premise that uh, in a Tory seat which is what Hove was if we're going to win the seat then we have to listen and learn and engage with Tory voters we have to respect Tory voters and we've got to show that our values and principles uh, are more compelling uh, and more likely to solve the challenges that people face than the other parties. And the only way you do that is by sitting in the room with them and going to the people's homes and into their neighbourhoods and communities. Uh, and I learned one very simple lesson through all of that is that uh, listening to Tories doesn't make you a Tory. <laughs> listening to Tories helps you beat Tories. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm so frustrated that the lesson, that very, very simple lesson that we learned in 2015 in Hove and was reinforced in 2017 in Hove, hasn't been adopted more widely, not just within my own party, but within politics in general, because I think that's the way we bring communities together and deliver solid majorities for political parties, not uh, weak majorities by dividing communities, which is the world we live in at the moment. Big Tent is a step in the right direction. Yeah, you kind of will come on to talk about Labour in a bit, but you've, you've touched on it there. Why is it so important in kind of the era that we're in now of increasing polarisation? I've always been involved in politics because 
I think that it is the best way we have of bringing communities together. I've been involved in setting charities up before. Uh, you know, I went to university and did a doctorate on community development. These are all always issues that have really uh, interested in me and uh, always been the one that I found, the areas I found most compelling in, in life. But I never thought I'd live in an era where there would be people who would make it to the top of politics by dividing communities and reinforcing the prejudices of one half and demonising the others. Uh, and this is something which I never thought in Britain that we would would be celebrated in the way that it is or would be a vehicle towards success in the way that it is, bearing in mind that Karl Marx said that Britain is the rock upon which the waves of revolution break. You know, and this is what he meant. I think there is a sort of robustness in our political system, but also our political culture that really uh, doesn't lend itself towards people who are divisive. And yet, for the first time, I find myself uh, living in an age where that is the case, but also being an MP in an age where that's the case. And it's quite something to, to adjust to. So, uh, yes, I think the big tent plays a big part in, uh, in just, just providing one small step in the right direction, hopefully a template for how we can move forward. Uh, I just love debate. And last year at the Big Tent, I came across loads of people who were there as a family and one father had brought his two kids along and he just said, between elections, you never get to see politicians sitting on a platform together and debating. Uh, and, and in fact, between elections, it's much less uh, partisan, it's, it's much less aggressive because, you know, you're not sort of in that thing where you're just reciting all the manifestos all the time and you're not just regurgitating the lines of the day actually you can have quite a free-flowing, engaging debate. So I, I really enjoyed it last summer. And I was, I was sad that so many people uh, didn't engage with it in an open-hearted way. Do you think it might be a little bit more uh, feisty this year, given where we're at with uh, Brexit? Well, there's a range of different things that are being discussed at Big Ten, just as last year. Last year, there were four or five different tents uh, and loads of people toing and froing, people running between different tents for different debates. Some of them were quite uh, feisty. I mean, I did a, a sort of two-hander with uh, Daniel Hannan on Brexit, you know, and that was feisty. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay. it was also very respectful. It was also very respectful and uh, and very engaging of, of the, the the audience. And there were other debates that I took part in. I took part in one in the afternoon. It was on international development. You know, I'd been an aid worker for 10 years. Uh, and studied uh, international development uh, quite a lot. So this was an area I really, really enjoyed speaking on. Uh, and again, it was a much more sort of cerebral discussion than, than the Brexit one was. Yeah. So I think, you know, you, you will get a whole raft of different approaches to politics. You'll get the bust-ups, you'll, you'll get the sort of cerebral inquiry into policy. Uh, and I think you'll get some, uh, all of the things in between, hopefully including some good-hearted fun as well. Peter, you made headlines earlier this year after spearheading the Kyle Wilson cross-party amendment for a confirmatory referendum on Brexit to try and find a way through the impasse that, that could kind of command the support cross-party, very much in that kind of big tent spirit. Do you still think that kind of thing is possible as we head towards no deal potentially on October the 31st? The compromise that Phil Wilson and I worked on together was never just a vehicle for one particular moment in time. It was a principle. That principle was that there's been so many different versions of Brexit uh, since uh, the referendum in 2016 that actually we got to a point where the only way we can really legitimately uh, 
go through these end stages, the end game, is if we go back to the people and ask them to confirm whether this is the Brexit that they want and they're happy with. Uh, people should really understand that actually this came from not Phil and I sitting down at that particular moment. Last summer, this time last year, Phil came down to Hove. Uh, and then afterwards, I went up to Sedgefield and spent quite a few days up in Sedgefield. And together, we looked at each other's constituencies. We visited businesses. We visited schools. We stopped people in the street. We did door knocking together. We really tried to get under the hood of each other's constituencies for one very simple reason. They're so contrasting. Uh, mine is metropolitan. You know, Sedgefield is very yeah. traditional. His is leave. The, the, the community I represent is remain. Uh, there's all these. I'm in the southeast. He's up there in the northeast. Uh, and we wanted to go down this path together to think, well, uh, the, the Labour Party uh, seems to be retracting into the metropolitan areas at the moment, but we are, uh, if you like, one nation Labour members of parliament, and we want to s design policies that can tackle the challenges that both constituencies face and solve them, even though they're quite contrasting. So take housing, for example. We have a housing crisis here in Hove because we have a shortage of housing and the cost of housing here is so exorbitant and very high uh, percentage of uh, buy-to-let properties so the, the, the buyer's market isn't uh, it is quite distorted at the expense of, uh, of rented. Up there in the northeast they have completely the opposite set of challenges so how do we as a party tackle issues like this and have one set of policies that tackle both challenges yeah. and we did this on a whole series of different areas and then when we reached the gridlock in parliament over brexit then we sat down together in my office and said well okay well let's now apply what we've learned in housing and in a whole bunch of other areas and, and economic areas as well and how do we apply that same learning to the brexit challenge and that is how we came up with the the kyle wilson compromise it wasn't just a sort of a, a thing that sprang out of nowhere and uh, so, uh, so, so now we, we did apply that and we came up with the compromise, which is basically to get it through Parliament. So we compromise by allowing something that we fundamentally disagree with to get through Parliament uh, in, in return. That's, the, that's Theresa May's. Theresa May's deal or yeah. the government's deal. Yeah. I mean, it was never just Theresa May's deal. It yeah. was the British government's deal. Yeah. She had the legal right to deliver that deal because she signed Article 50. Parliament allowed her to start the Article 50 process, even though I voted against it because I thought she wasn't ready. But she did actually have the legal right to do so. So she came back with a legally uh, acceptable deal, which is signed off by the British government and the EU, uh, but Parliament would not let it pass. So let's get it through Parliament and allow the public into this conversation and finding a, a vehicle, uh, a legislative vehicle, which means it never has to return to Parliament afterwards. So once the public have confirmed it, it never has to come back to Parliament. It immediately goes on to statute and we leave on those terms. But if uh, yeah. the public you know, reject it, then we go back to the status quo, which is remain. Yeah. So this was a way of just bringing all sides together. Everybody gives something which is actually quite meaningful. And we can move forward together as a country. And I believe, even though it's a very difficult thing to ask uh, our communities to do, at the end of the day, there is no way through Brexit without going back to constituencies and delivering some pretty tough news. No deal her deal or the government's deal uh, or revoke uh, or referendum these are the only ways that we can get through brexit now in the end game yeah uh, and each of them is going to involve mps going back and saying some pretty tough things yeah and do you think that 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 this idea of a referendum is going to form part of cross-party attempts to stop no deal which we know are coming this autumn and which presumably you're 
a part of. In terms of Parliament, people have to realise it's not business as usual. So business as usual, I've learned this, I've only been an MP for four years, the first motion I've ever put down in my own name or amendment I've ever put down in my own name happened to be the the Kaya Wilson one, which yeah. was about you know Brexit, sort of which was a generationally uh, big moment. And what I learned in that is that when it comes to Brexit, it's like when you do these things in Parliament, it's a ball, a snowball that starts rolling, and you just gather and gather and gather new people. So you adjust uh, and you change the wording, you adapt the wording, you get more people coming on. You know, you will. Uh, change the, the 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 wording that you'll use. You'll change uh, the people you're engaging with. You'll uh, change the date you're going to press it, and suddenly more people come on. But with Brexit, it's very different. Every time you add people, when it comes to Brexit, you lose others. Yeah, and that's the thing like that Theresa May. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The snowball an- analogy just simply doesn't yeah. work when it comes to Brexit because every time you do something that attracts another group, you will lose another group. And mm. of course, the person who knows this better than anyone else is Theresa May. Yeah, and so uh, the exception has been the Kyle Wilson approach to, uh, to, to finding a way through the Brexit impasse. Yeah. Because what we have done is grown each time. We've pressed it twice in the House of Commons. And uh, both uh, the, the, the first time uh, we lost and the, the second time we lost by a very tight margin, just 12 votes. Bearing in mind Theresa May lost by 58 on her third attempt. Yeah. So it's still the principle that came closest to delivering a way through. Now, since that time, nobody has said that they're not going to vote for it again, should they get the opportunity. But we've now had numerous people coming up to say that they will, simply because they now recognise it is a choice between leaving with no deal and it being rammed through Parliament with no democratic mandate and no engagement of the public, or we go back to the public. And in those circumstances they will tolerate uh, a referendum campaign that previously they wouldn't countenance. So I now, uh, I'm absolutely convinced we have the numbers, we just have to look for the vehicle. And if Boris Johnson had the courage that he keeps telling us he has, he would lead through this campaign himself. Now, presumably you've got the numbers because there's a load of sacked Tory Remain ministers <laughs> and, and Philip Hammond's leading them all over to your side. Is that fair? It's not entirely fair uh, because... The names that are springing into my mind as I was talking were actually Tory backbenchers who previously, some of whom had been in government in the past, uh, but had voted against Kyle Wilson in, in the two opportunities that they had. Uh, they and many of them are now saying that, actually some, some people who've spoken out in, in the most strident terms against this in public have now said to me privately that they'll be there Uh, if the opportunity arises now. And one of them said to me, this was two days before we broke up for recess. And it really surprised me. And I said, but I spoke to you about this just a fortnight ago. Uh, And the reply was, this is something I've come to the conclusion of in the last couple of days. And so there's a lot more of this now. And I think people realise that we are in the end game. We are feeling the peril. uh, And we've got to start adjusting accordingly. Yeah, and as you kind of hinted at, it's going to be quite complicated, isn't it? So there's going to have to be kind of it might sort of be a two-stage but we don't know exactly how votes might work out or anything but it's essentially going to have to be a kind of two-stage process one will be we're kind of voting to stop Boris Johnson taking us out with no deal on October 31st and then there's going to be another stage which is going to be right well what what are we doing instead is, is it kind of fair to lay it out kind of like that because you, you do need to change the law to stop it happening or bring down the government right and then at some point 
we'll have to have a debate about what we do with any extension or time we have before we leave and, and so on. It's fair to say that stopping no deal is the absolute priority. There are people who will do absolutely anything to stop no deal who don't really have a firm view about the way through. There are people who will stop no deal who absolutely want to leave the European Union. And I would put actually Philip Hammond in that position. He wants to stop no deal at any cost, I believe. But also, he does want to leave with the deal. He, he believes very, very uh, passionately. Whether you speak to him in public, as you see him on the TV, he says exactly the same thing privately in, in the few occasions that I've had a, a conversation with him. He believes very passionately that the deal delivered by Theresa May is the right one. Mm. Uh, so there will have to be, you're right, a kind of two-staged conversation because it, it is absolutely no doubt in my mind that stopping no deal is the priority and the singular priority of this particular parliament. Uh, the House of Commons absolutely wants to do that. It, it's exercised this view numerous times in the past. It shouldn't yeah. be sh- shocking to anyone. Yeah. It's only because we live in an age now, which Ken Clark speaks about very, uh, very eloquently, that we now have non-binding votes in the House of Commons. Whereas in his day, bearing in mind that he was elected to Parliament the year I was born, uh, he says in his day, if the House of Commons voted, it voted. Right, you yeah. didn't pick and choose which yeah. votes you actually... Uh, ignored and which ones you accepted if there was a majority in the house of commons that was the will of parliament yeah Uh, so we live in this weird age now where we have actually voted on no deal several times we've delivered a massive stonking majority for for taking no deal off the table Mm -hmm. and yet because technically it wasn't the right type of motion at the right time Mm -hmm. government has chosen to ignore it yeah Uh, i believe now that it it ignores that message at government's peril Do you get the feeling that the Labour leadership is probably more likely to go for an election over a second referendum? And is that frustrating for you? Or can, do, you think, do you think they're compatible with each other? Do you think we can have an election, a Labour government, and then a referendum? What I'll tell you is what I said to Jeremy personally. Uh, and I said to Jeremy, if you have a general election before Brexit or this stage of Brexit is resolved... What's our manifesto going to say on it? Yeah. What's, his, what's your manifesto going to say in it? And I said two names. And I said it's going to keep both of these people in the party going into an election. Because there are people who, uh, who will not stand uh, on a manifesto which says that we are a main party. And there are many people, uh, and I include myself in this, that would not stand on the manifesto that said we were a leave uh, party. So... Uh, we, I had this debate with Jeremy and I said, is it not better that we have a, a public ballot and we consult the public specifically on Brexit and we find a way through Brexit that can reconcile the country and then we move to a general election where we can set our stall out about our vision for the economy, our, future, uh, our vision for uh, a better Britain uh, in the 21st century, uh, into, including all public services and tackling crime and opportunities and internationalism. That's the election that we need to be fighting as a, as a political party. Uh, so I have had this debate, and I, fir- I believe absolutely firmly that a referendum is the first public ballot that we should have, because that's putting national interest first. In a general election, you simply cannot tell the public what we want as politicians them to vote on. Mm. If you have a general election, the whole point of it is that it is, elect- it is voters, it's residents who own that election. It's yeah. theirs, not ours. It's like the last election, Theresa May called a 
exactly right. Brexit election and it didn't end up being won, and that's exactly why it right. did a lot better than expected. So. Exactly right. You know, give me a strong arm in, in or strong hand in the negotiations of the EU, and they didn't because people were voting on her social care policy. They were voting on her personal performance. Now, of course, in referendums, there you know these are complex things as well, and people vote for a variety of things. But at least you can focus them on one particular yeah. singular issue. That's what we need to be working on now. And so that's what I believe. I think I understand completely why Jeremy wants to push and move towards a general election. We should be doing so. and We should be putting, being put on a general election footing at the moment. But if we go into a general election before Brexit is uh, resolved and the public have had a say in Brexit, I think that the results will be wildly unpredictable. You only have to see that about 80% of the public at the moment define themselves as either remain or leave as their primary uh, political identifier. You know, there's only about 20 or 30% of people out there who would countenance putting a, their, their political identification in terms of a political party, first and foremost. So if we go into a general election in these circumstances, then I think it would be a plague on all your houses. And I think it would be uh, an opportunity for the electorate to punish the political class uh, for not resolving this, the biggest problem facing our country, but also leading us to a place where politics has become more acrimonious, less consensual. Uh, and actually, for all the talk of the referendum in 2016, we have shut out the public in the most profound way. Uh, and most people feel very unrepresented uh, right now. And we go into a general election in these circumstances, then uh, I, I really, really genuinely worry what the outcome will be. Yeah, and, and just a final one on Brexit. One of the kind of ways that has been mooted, which doesn't look as likely anymore because of Jeremy Corbyn's position, is a government of national unity to form and then either call an election or call a referendum and then kind of just sit there and make it happen. Jeremy Corbyn, the other opposition parties don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be in number 10 so it's unlikely to happen until he kind of steps aside and maybe uh, gets behind a backbencher, a Tory or Labour backbencher and that's the only way it can happen. Would you like to see him stand aside to allow that to happen if it got to that and uh, who who, would, who could be the PM of a government of national unity? Could you be PM? <laughs> <laughs> My God. The Jeremy is absolutely right to push to become Prime Minister. That's his job. Yeah. You know, I absolutely you know, understand, endorse and support Jeremy in his desire to do that. If Jeremy calls a no confidence vote in Boris Johnson, I will vote for that vote of no confidence. Yeah. And I will then expect Jeremy to try and form a government. Mm -hmm. Of course he should. Yeah. In the circumstances where Jeremy isn't able to form a government, and the Prime Minister is, isn't able to form a government, I think resolving the Brexit issue and trying to explore different ways that Parliament can get its act together to get us through this really difficult period would be priority number one mm. and should be explored. And I would certainly throw myself into it in an open-hearted way. Mm. I don't know what uh, would be the best outcome in terms of names and personalities and uh, political makeups and all the rest of it, because it, the permutations are just so vast when you get into that kind of territory. Yeah. But what I do know is that the, the public expect and desperately want some grown-ups to get in charge of our country and to sort this mess out. And if there was an opportunity to do that, 
I would certainly throw myself into it in as open-hearted way as I possibly possibly could, providing its sole purpose and only purpose was to resolve the Brexit crisis that we're in at the moment. Names like Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn, Oliver Letwin have been thrown around. Those are the kind of people who we've seen kind of spearheading cross-party attempts to stop no deal or find a compromise. I mean, they're the sort of people you'd be looking at. They are the sort of calibre of people that you would be looking at at a time like this because you would expect people, if you're talking about people who are going to lead our country, for even, even though we're talking perhaps for a matter of weeks or a couple of months or whatever, you would look for people who've had experience of Parliament for a period of time. You would expect to see people who have led uh, leadership positions in the past. You would expect to see people who've had experience of government in the past. But, you know, Peter Kyle, the MP for Hove, isn't going to isn't going to decide this because uh, ultimately my job is to listen and learn and try and build as many bridges as we can. Uh, in order for that, that particular scenario to play out, you would need a lot of Tories to come on board yeah. for it. So actually... Uh, who they could countenance working with in that situation would be very important, and the kind of names that you're uh, that you're mentioning there you know, are, are certainly you know, in that ballpark because they're ones who who have very widespread support and respect across the House of Commons. Moving on at Big Tent, you're speaking on one panel on how to achieve net zero carbon emissions. Uh, Mark Carney was on the news a couple of weeks ago saying. Essentially, capitalism will provide the solution. Do you believe that, or do you think this needs massive state, Im- state influence and, and actually big behavioural changes from the public as well, or a combination of all? That's really interesting about Mark Carney saying that, because, of course, this has been the most uh, interventionist Bank of England that we've probably had in our lifetime, since the, you know, the ERM, uh, Black Wednesday, and the financial crash in 2008, we have a Bank of England that is, is, is intensely interventionist. You know, it is the quantitative easing that we've seen has been unprecedented in size and scale. Uh, so they are very actively engaging in the market. They are not passively standing by like some rabid capitalist who is, is looking at applying some economic Darwinianism to our economy. So the idea that Mark Carney in the Bank of England right now is some red in tooth and claw <laughs> capitalist endeavour, uh, it, it strikes me as being a bit odd. I think what we need at the moment uh, is certainly not a, uh, a rejection of the capitalist model for our country, but what we do need is a far more interventionist government. Uh, when you look at things like steel, when you look at things like uh, Carillion, when you look at some of the corporate failures that we've seen, it is very, very clear that there are parts of our economy that are simply not functioning well enough. Uh, right down to the, the fact where uh, you know, Whirlpool is still millions of uh, white goods out there which yeah. could well catch fire because they haven't been modified or they've been modified and the modification hasn't worked and regulators haven't picked it up. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to really think about the way that we actually... Uh, operate our economy in the capitalist uh, model that we, that we choose. Uh, I think the culture of regulation needs to change quite profoundly. Uh, I sit on the Bayes Select Committee and I, I've said repeatedly on the record now that I'm completely fed up with regulator after regulator after regulator coming before us and apologising for letting down consumers. Uh, the FRC knew that Carillion was going off the 
rails and didn't intervene. Mm. Uh, Ofgem knew that £1.3 billion pounds had been taken from vulnerable customers via their energy bills and it's basically shoved into the pockets of shareholders. Mm. They didn't intervene. Uh, so we need a much more robust service. What I've said to all of them is that uh, I think that uh, I think that um, uh, that uh, the schools regulator would do a damn sight better job of regulating our economy. I mean, I think we should just get Ofsted in <laughs> to regulate our economy. Yeah. I mean, when Ofsted goes into the school, they sit in classrooms, they see how teachers are yeah. teaching. They go through the marking, they go through the books, they look at how, how the accounts are being done and whether yeah. they're financially robust enough. You know, there's a few companies I wouldn't mind... Uh, regulators marching into and actually going through things to make sure because these are very complex difficult companies to 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 look at and shareholders simply don't have the information to make the judgments that they need to about investments and so forth so um yeah offset for business that's a well an offset for the economy but i i I use it because uh it's a good way of showing that 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 in in entirely state-run sectors uh the regulators have far more uh, a far more robust, investigatory, determined approach to find out really what's going on. And in other areas, much more hands-off, and I understand why. Uh, what's changed? The financial crash changed the perceptions and what the public expect from government and regulators, uh, and austerity has done so similarly. Uh, the profligacy, the bad management, even in the private sector, which we've seen in terms of Carillion, which uh, has wiped billions uh, off of uh, pensions and uh, the money going into workers' pockets. Uh, this has changed the perception. And I don't want, you know, don't take me at face value about Ofsted, but uh, I do have it at the back of my mind. And I know that we can do it when we want to do it. And I think that the public expect a much different culture of regulation and, and also interventionism. Uh, and I'm very happy when it comes to state ownership um, for the government to be, to, to be looking you know, quite uh, broadly, uh, the role of state investment, uh, state control of uh, certain uh, you know, companies, and also, uh, you know, when you look at something, some of the R and D coming out of our universities, uh, so much of it, you know, flees our country. You know, if the government, if government can play a role uh, in some of these in a more hands-on way, which keeps it in our country and keeps the investment in our country whether through state ownership or arm's length or regional ownership. Regional ownership is something I'd like to look at in terms of the rail. You know, these are things I think we should be examining because we have the opportunity to examine at the moment. So, you know, let's take it, take the opportunity we have with the shift in perception and expectations uh, of the public in, an, in a post, uh, in a post um, austerity world and try and come up with some new solutions. You're sounding a lot more like Jeremy like one of Jeremy Corbyn's MPs than maybe other times right now. Do you think the party at the moment is a big tent? Now, I would say that I've, I've always been very consistent in all of these thoughts. It's very rare that I get the chance to, uh, to, to speak about some of these things because normally when you're in an interview, you, you have to define yourself against Jeremy. They will say, some, say something that's come out which is quite extreme uh, and then you are asked to define yourself against it. You know, but actually, you know, these are issues that I've been uh, examining and working on and thinking about for a very long time. It's very rare that I get the chance to speak about it in a, in a free way, which is why I love these events like Big Ten, because you can uh, start to talk about it. Is the Labour Party a Big Ten right now? It's, it, it is uh, in 
practice because we have MPs and we have members from right across the the left because we've always been very very uh, embracing of people who are who share the same values principles which stretch back way over 100 years in the, in the labor movement uh, but actually in practice there is a lot of pressure coming from very from one particular part uh, of the party and that's making it very very difficult and life very uncomfortable for some people to speak freely the kind of discussion that we've had here today uh, i wish we could have more uh, in a more open-hearted way in a more open-spirited way within the party sometimes do, do you think that can ever happen now is is the party kind of gone, gone. as some people <laughs> say in, in that way is has there been a leftist takeover do you think that can't be reversed uh, i'd say anything is possible of course uh, anything is possible the only thing i would say is that it won't happen by accident we're only going to move to a more kinder uh, more embracing more open more open-spirited brand of politics within the labor party if we are led there you know sp safe spaces for thinking acting, socialising, discussing and debating ideas, they don't just happen by accident. They happen when people create that space. You get the right people in there. And if there are people who are disruptive, disrespectful, you don't have them in there. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes seen as being overbearing or sort of interventionist and so forth. But actually, it's time we rolled our sleeves up in the Labour Party and said there are a very wide variety of people we want to have in this room and we want to show each of them the respect that they're that, that's due and sometimes there are people who fight their way into those rooms who just make it very very difficult to have uh, a, a truly open-hearted debate and the same is true in the Tory party right now as well I mean let's just not not pr pretend that this is this is an issue of yeah that this is an issue of that's just affecting one particular part of uh, politics at the moment because it isn't and you know we and also it's reflective of what's going outside you know w within politics in general uh, the thing about brexit which has really frustrated me is that the idea that if you support remain you're somehow being you're illegitimate your view is illegitimate because you lost the strength of our political system that's evolved over many hundreds of years is that when you lose an election, the, the people who are on the losing side of the election still have a voice in opposition. But now people are saying that, you know, if you've supported Remain, like me, you tried to find a, a Remain version that would not damage our economy, like staying in a single market, but when that door was shut, you then went back to Remain and fought for Remain, that you somehow, you know, you're illegitimate, you, you are... You, you, you're not respecting the vote in some way. Well, actually, I might not be respecting the fact I lost the vote, but I sure as hell am respecting democracy. Because in a, in a true functional democracy, people who lose elections still fight for their principles. Yeah, of course. Uh, and that's the world we're moving in with Brexit nationwide in a general population. But the same sort of thing is happening within parties as well. And, you know, the number of times people will say that, you know, I supported Liz Kendall at 4%. I'm in the 4%. Mm. Well, uh, you know, yeah, I lost. I, I'm not going to suddenly change who I am as a political being yeah. because of that. But I do believe that the experiences and the values and principles that I hold, which are very mainstream Labour, when you look at Labour through, through the decades and through all its periods in government, uh, I think that it would be odd to say that I don't have a place in the mix anymore. Mm. And for people who don't think that it's right, 
Well, I think they're part of the problem, not part of the solution our politics faces. Do you think Jeremy can do that, say, you know, taking some measures like reshuffling the shadow cabinet, and, or do you think it's too late? He's, he's kind of picked a side and, and, and he's running with that now. Well, unfortunately, it does seem that all of the opportunities he has to lead in a different direction, he's not taking. But is it too late? I can't answer that question, but it's never too late to try. And I know what trying looks like. It means throwing your heart and soul into it. It does mean changing your team, changing the people around you, changing the people you listen to, uh, engaging in a, uh, you know, in a much more open and meaningful way. When Phil and I were going through the Kyle Wilson thing, I, you know, we met with Jeremy and his team uh, you know, many times, uh, and I like to think that I did so in an open-hearted way. Uh, and we got to the point where 203 Labour MPs you know, voted for something that we know that Jeremy, you know, in his instinct, wasn't entirely comfortable with. Mm. Uh, we got through that as a party, even though it was a rocky road. We got through it at the other end, you know, really serving uh, our membership and our Labour voters and supporters. I wish we could take that as a template for tackling other challenges that our party faces as well. Uh, but... You know, right now, I think in, you know, when you miss the target in politics, you can't just try again aiming for the same height. You've got to go higher. Mm. So in terms of tackling anti-Semitism, in terms of, you know, delivering what the Remain supporting majority within the Labour Party want, you're going to have to go higher. You can't say what you could have said six months ago. Right, yeah. He's going to have to act with more sincerity, more vigour. He's going to have to give, uh, you know, a much more full-throated uh explanation of, uh, of Labour policy and make sure that that speaks with much more clarity than we've had in the past. So each week we miss in these issues, the expectations of him get higher, the, the challenge that he faces gets harder and the opportunity for him to look like the kind of leader that the public say they want from him becomes more difficult. Great, I think we'll leave it there, Peter. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, the Big Tent Ideas Festival is on August the 31st in Mudshoot Park and Farm in London. Tickets are available at bigtent.org.uk and see you there. See you there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.